Munit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcast. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Yonit. Each week we do this. Two Jews, one in Israel, one outside Israel, talking about Israel and the Jewish world from inside and from the outside. Um, we have so much going on in the world, but I just am bursting because I know normally we wait till the end of the show to hand out our awards, our Chutzpah of the Week awards and our Mensch of the Week award. And uh, normally I'm very patient and reserved and managed to hold it in, but I am bursting with this <laughs> week's one. I just can't wait because everybody in this uh, city, in London, and perhaps in the country, is agog about just the most breathtaking act of chutzpah I think any of us can remember. And it involves the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. I'm shocked. And it, and it involves <laughs> Christmas parties. And mm -hmm. that is, it, to wind the clock back a year ago, London, like much of the world, was in the depths of lockdown where all kinds of social, not just gatherings, but interaction, social contact was banned, where you couldn't even go and meet immediate family and some heart-rending stories about people couldn't be with dying loved ones it now emerges that in downing street at exactly that time they were partying they were having uh cheese wine and nibbles um in the depths of lockdown and this cause of the party has the prime minister on the rack here in london and it is just the most egregious act of chutzpah you know, obviously, Boris Johnson has had this on-again, off-again relationship with the truth. Usually, they're on a break. But I, <laughs> I wonder, I mean, does this matter at all? I saw this sort of snap poll that you put on on Twitter that says, you know, most uh, Brits think he, think he should resign. Does it matter? Will it hurt him that 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 uh, you know extensively well i mean the the big question always has been with him you know is this going to be the thing that finally uh, undoes him and people have been saying he's a cat with nine lives things that would have killed off any normal politician somehow he survives partly because being a kind of maverick rule breaker is part of his persona but this goes so deep because people sacrifice so much um you know christmas i know we're going to talk about this on a future podcast is such a big deal here i mean i think we've made joking reference before that jews gather as families you know all the time every friday night dozens of festivals and hagim and days all throughout the year but there are many families in this country i don't want to sound judgmental who it seems they only ever get together on christmas <laughs> day it's like the one time christmas day they they meet their parents and grandparents and grandchildren and that last year Boris Johnson had to cancel Christmas. There was no Christmas gathering mm -hmm. for families and really terrible stories of people being alone. And the idea that at that time there was a, they were not just ga gathering uh, with colleagues, but partying in Downing Street. And it's all been confirmed because a video emerged uh, in which Downing Street officials are shown mocking up a pretend press conference where they're asked about this and laughing about it. Uh, and that has just gone down so badly. So I know it seems a kind of trivial cause, a party. Uh, surely that's not going to bring down a prime minister. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe it won't. But it's, it's the idea of the contrast, the hypocrisy of one rule for them, one rule for us. It would be the most egregious act of chutzpah uh, normally. And we would, we would hand out a major trophy to the British prime minister at the end of our show. But this yeah. time I just thought we, it is the, you know, it is the chat uh, and do dominating all talk here. And I thought I couldn't hold it in any longer. 
Okay, but we're going to have to find someone to fill uh, Boris's chutzpah shoes at the end of the program because we yeah. will have to give out a chutzpah award. And, we uh, will. There's no shortage. <laughs> on each. No right, and we'll, we'll also say that uh, we're going to talk uh, in this program with uh, author Dara, Dara Horn about her brilliant book, People Love Dead Jews, which we both really loved, and also the Maccabees win not only in the Hanukkah story, but first, before anything else, Jonathan, we have to talk about former President uh, Donald Trump's explosive new quotes on Netanyahu and American Jews, and they appear in Barack Ravid, uh, diplomatic correspondent here in Israel, incomparable journalist, really, uh, in his first, first book that is coming out. It's called Trump's Peace, the Abraham Accords and the Reshaping of the Middle East. Now, some of those quotes were published today in the Idiot Chonot newspaper, and they're really, uh, really uh, amazing. What, what Trump says about Netanyahu, we have to say that the background for all this is the fact that uh, Netanyahu finally, by the way, it took him some time to congratulate Joe Biden for winning actually winning the elections. Uh, but uh, Trump uh, saw this as an affront to him. He says that he is the, the, you know, that Netanyahu is the politician that he helped more than anyone else. By the way, he's right about that. And he says, you know, I was disappointed in BB just on a personal basis. It's a terrible personal d- betrayal. I haven't spoken to him since. And then he goes on to say two words I can't say out loud because my mother is listening to this podcast. Maybe you want to fill in the blank on what else he said about Netanyahu. I think he said F him, didn't he? So that- <laughs> That's my family-friendly <laughs> version. Um, he did. He did indeed. It, you, you know, I, I, I mean, these are, credit to Barack Ravid, as you say, really a first-rate journalist and has made this patch of the relationship between Washington and Israel very much his own. Um, but it's these are really um, arresting remarks from the former president. And um, I, it's interesting about what effect that will have on, uh, on, on Bibi and his field of future prospects of a comeback because... It's really arresting because it confirms, I think, but very dramatically and vividly, some things we suspected, really. And that is that in some ways, you know, these two men are similar and they are very, I think, transactional. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's about what they can do, what somebody can do for them. And if Bibi Netanyahu thought there was some kind of personal bond Mm -hmm. with Donald Trump, this suggests he was wrong. Yeah, you know, it's only ever about loyalty to Donald Trump. And if you deviate from that, then that's the end of yeah. uh, any kind of perceived friendship. I don't think Donald Trump had real friends. It was just about, are oh, you slavishly loyal to him? And if you're not, that's it. It's over. You're well, look, I mean, it's pretty clear that the honeymoon is over, the marriage is over, and we're in the acrimonious divorce at this point between the two uh, uh, men. And as you say, it's really important because Netanyahu presented this as his biggest asset inside Israel and outside, right? And what is clear now is that Trump, uh, how shall we say, uh, is is uh, not his uh, supporter anymore. And uh, and that means something in the Republican Party in the United States and in Israel. And he also blames Netanyahu and he says, you know, Netanyahu never wanted peace, which is also, I think, very, very important. He says, I, I strove for this and, and Netanyahu didn't, uh, didn't uh, help me doing this. By the way, in other excerpts from the book, he discusses uh, the American Jews will bring this at length uh, next uh, episode and Barack Ravid will be with us but he says I've said this for a long time the Jewish people in the United States either don't like Israel or don't care about Israel the Trumpian logic being if I was so good for Israel and they didn't support me then they don't care about Israel I'm very excited that we're going to have Barack Ravid on because I think it will be very good to talk through this aspect of it Um, 
it, it was a, it, you know, there was a real disconnect between Trump's image of himself. He couldn't believe uh, that he was not beloved by the Jews, that he was not hailed as some kind of king of the Jews figure. There was that disconnect between that on the one hand and the polling numbers and the voting numbers where three quarters of Jews, absolutely American Jews stayed with the Democratic Party. They did not move over to Donald Trump. I think Orthodox Jews were the exception. But that was partly because there was a sense, I mean, look, mainly it was because Jew, American Jews are Democrats, but there was also a sense that for all this talk that he would say about himself, that, they, that Donald Trump was not, to coin a phrase, good for the Jews, that actually he carried around some pretty old, hoary stereotypes about Jews and had to be admonished, you know, by the ADL and other groups during his presidency for referring to Jews so often in terms of money and what was going to affect their wealth. Uh, and I think we're going to hear next, in next week's podcast much more mm -hmm. detail yep. of, uh, of, of how Trump really did see American Jews. And I think anyone who harbored any delusions about that is likely to be disappointed. Okay, then we will continue now to talk some more about Jews. <laughs> Well, time for us to welcome to our little cosy pod here our special guest for this week. She is a an acclaimed and multi-award-winning novelist in the United States, uh, also a scholar in both Hebrew and Yiddish. But the reason why Yoni and I, uh, we've been so desperate to get on Dara Horn is because of her new book, People Love Dead Jews, which is really an absolutely riveting, compelling, and I mean, a book luminous with ideas and intelligence. And for a long time, I think we both really, really wanted to have you on. So Dara Horn, a huge welcome to Unholy. Thank you for, for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. You wrote, I think it was back in 2018, you wrote a piece for the Smithsonian Magazine about Anne Frank, which later became the first chapter of the book. And the first line of that article was, People love dead Jews. Living Jews, not so much. And I'm kind of curious how that conversation with the, public, <laughs> the publisher sounded like when you said, I want to keep that as a title. I want to call the book People Love Dead Jews. <laughs> um, wow. Well, you know, I actually was really surprised to not get any pushback from my publisher about the title. I was very much stealing myself for that. I remember telling friends like, oh, my new book is called People Love Dead Jews until the publisher <laughs> makes me change it. They didn't make me change it. And I, I sort of, I'm not really sure why. And I, I kind of wonder if, um, one thing that's sort of interesting about this book is with the publisher is that um, it's, my publisher in the United States is Norton um, there and also Norton UK I know is distributing it in the UK. Um, there obviously are people who are Jewish who work at Norton. They don't happen to be working on this book. Um, my editor is not Jewish. The people who are in you know publicity, marketing, whatever else are not Jewish. And um, I kind of wonder if they thought maybe it wasn't their place to push back on the title um you know here you know in the united states you know we're now having this like huge you know national discourse about race and you know redefining those kinds of questions about diversity and i, I sort of wonder if they were if they just like kind of like were too hesitant to push back but i do i i, I am sure there were many internal meetings about it um meanwhile i also have um there's a companion podcast to this book called adventures with dead jews and for that it was very much the opposite because that was um created by uh tablet magazine which is a jewish publication and uh there the production team and i were always joking about how we're going to um make merchandise you know like uh tote bags coffee mugs right like no one's going to take your you know seat at the pool if you have your adventures i, with I love dead the 
idea that there's all these editors sitting around in Norton going, maybe that's just how they talk. You know, <laughs> we can't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Maybe it's their secret language. Well, and they publish all my, I mean, like my previous five books were also with Norton, um, with the same editor, um, and, you know, who's been wonderful for me for 20 years. And all of my novels are dealing with Jewish themes too. And, uh, you know, she's, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, to their credit, they, they didn't want to, you know, so, step so, on the so, writer's idea. So I'm, I was, I was impressed. So you, as you say, you've written novels before, but this is nonfiction. It is, uh, some of these essays are about, you know, lost Jewish communities, dead Jewish communities. They are richly reported, but they, the, the thing that really makes it to my mind stand out are these ideas. Somehow this very new set of new takes on perennial questions. And one of the things you say in there is, look, obviously Jews are tiny people are kind of rounding error statistically and yet they occupy we occupy an outsized place in the global imagination and just for people who have not yet come to the book what is that place that we occupy in the global imagination would you say as i put it people tell stories about dead jews that make them feel better about themselves Right, that there's some kind of like psychological projection going on, and the Jews are playing this role of you know not just the scapegoat, which is you know that's something you know a lot of people are aware of, um, but something a little bit deeper, where people are telling stories about dead Jews that make them feel better about themselves, and also that require the erasure of actual Jews and you know living Jews, actual Jews, and and the content of Jewish culture. So you, I, I want to continue that thought because, again, what you're talking about, this fascination with Jewish death does not allow for really the expression of, of Jewish life. And that's connected to anti-Semitism because what you would expect would happen, of course, is the more people know about what happened to Jews, the less they will hate them, right? Which is not exactly what is going on. One of your really, I mean, thought-provoking episodes, uh, chapters is about uh, the Holocaust exhibition, the Auschwitz exhibition in, in, in New York. And you talk about that. You say maybe... Maybe we made a mistake when we thought that everyone would, it would be important for everyone to know this on a granular detail. Yes. So I think that there was sort of um, an investment that was on the part of, uh, initially on the part of the Jewish community in the past, you know, uh, 30 to 40 years in Holocaust education, um, you know, certainly in the United States, um, where, you know, you have things like the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington that was opened in 1993. Um, around that same time is when you start getting, like, that was when Schindler's List came out, that that film, and other films like it started coming out. Um, you also had, um, at least in the United States, you had actually even the introduction of, like, mandatory Holocaust curricula in, you know, state schools in many states um, across the country. So, you know, I, you know, a lot of this was, you know, championed by Jews. And what I think is interesting is that it was kind of a strategy in a way, because the idea was, um, you know, not just sort of this idea of, you know, memorializing people who were murdered in the Holocaust, but also this idea that, you know, people would come to these museums or, you know, read these books, see these movies, you know, you know, learn these things in school, learn what the world had done to the Jews, learn where hatred could lead, and they would then stop hating Jews. <laughs> and, you know, it's, you know, it's sort of what's interesting about that is like, you know, like, it wasn't a ridiculous idea, but, you know, perhaps we can say that it has is you know 30 years later maybe not entirely effective um you know one of the things i i mentioned in the book is you know when 
Jews are, let's say, trolled on social media and they're like, you know, photoshopping you into a gas chamber. Like the problem, like that person knows about Auschwitz. Like the problem is not an education problem. Um, and so, you know, that's sort of, you know, something. And, and when I, I talked about the, in the book, the Auschwitz show in, in New York, this was an exhibit that really sort of exemplifies that the shift of the way Holocaust memorialization goes from when it sort of leaves the Jewish community. You know, they have like, you know, videos of survivors like talking on a loop about how all you need is love. And I'm just standing there in this room. I'm like, I'm so insulted by this because like the Holocaust didn't happen because of a lack of love. It happened because entire societies abdicated responsibility for their problems. And then I'm thinking about this as a Yiddish scholar. You know, there's a fair amount of survivor literature in Yiddish about the Holocaust. I couldn't think of anything that talks about love. Right? Like, that doesn't come up, right? Like, what do survivors talk about when they're speaking in Yiddish to other Jews? They talk about their destroyed centuries-old Jewish communities, right? They talk about Jewish national independence. They talk about, you know, they, they talk about self-defense. They talk about Zionism. So, I mean, it's just like, it was just so absurd that it had been turned into this sort of universalizing message, right? And that's the idea, this, like, universalization of this, which serves to erase the Jewish character of this. And I've been ranting for a while, so I should probably stop, but there's a no, lot I have uh, to say about this. You no, know, I like it, and I, and I like the fact you're getting a bit angry because the book has some a lot of anger in it. And that's, oh, yes. And that's really bracing. And, and I'm gonna, I wanted to pick up exactly this point you're making about this need, this appetite for a kind of feel-good, uplifting message mm -hmm. uh, that comes out of it. And you say that there is that even in the, the slightly more rarefied field of Holocaust literature, there's this expectation that the stories be uplifting, that they be sad but beautiful, uh, and that they leave the reader with some grace at the end. And Yonitos and listeners to Unholy know that I myself have been working on a book in this area on the Holocaust about uh, the, the first Jew to escape from Auschwitz. And, you know, I've been wrestling with this myself because I know there is that kind of need i know what you're talking about you say in the book that you think it's quite a christian demand that these stories end this way but i i just wondered whether actually there are quite a lot of jews who also want that and particularly want to even from an encounter a human encounter with a survivor when they have they want to come away feeling somehow inspired that we you know in other words that we're not just on the receiving end of this phenomenon that maybe we're part of it too well, I mean, I think that if you're looking for inspiration, like the Holocaust isn't a great place to start. The survivor right? stories, maybe. <laughs> but even survivor stories, I mean, what's interesting to me is like, you know, the way that there's, there's this glamorization of survivors is sort of like, you know, oh, look, these people went and rebuilt their lives. Like, yeah, some did. But a lot didn't. I mean, you know, there are a lot of people who, who died by suicide. I mean, there are a lot of people who are mentally ill, who are really not able to, you know, who, who had lost their, their children and then, you know, had subsequent families and were unable to parent those people, you know, adequately. I mean, there are a lot of people who were, like, not this, like, shining story of mental health and success after this. I mean, there's an enormous amount of trauma. And, you know, we just sort of erase that because, you like, you know, people, yeah, people like the happier story. We want there to be a moment of grace we want there to be an epiphany like these are all very christian terms i don't think that's a coincidence and it was very glaring to me in studying um you know because i was uh did my my doctoral work in comparative literature so i had to take all those classes about you know literary theory and stuff but then i also was studying hebrew and yiddish literature and i was like wow the writers i'm studying in hebrew and yiddish literature like they don't give you those things 
You know, like, nobody's ever saved, right? Nobody's ever, like, given a moment of grace or an epiphany. Like, no, they never have any of that. Like, and I just, you know, it's a different model of literature where the model is about, like, it is about resilience. It is about endurance. But there's this idea that, like, you know, you can't, like, try to sort of give this, like, you know, optimistic view about the human experience while still, like, trying to make sense of the world. So, but to your, to your point about, you know, um, you know, Jews are part of this and wanting there to be some hopeful story, like... Yeah, I mean, I think all people are, right? I mean, all people want some kind of, like, sense of hope for the future. Okay, I mean, you know, that's not unique to, you know, any one tradition or religion. But, like, you know, to me, like, you know, yeah, like, if you're going to be worrying about the Holocaust, like, you're not going to... If you're getting inspiration from stories about the Holocaust, like maybe you're not actually learning about the Holocaust. <laughs> I have to, um, you know, be the, be the Israeli in the conversation and ask, you know, I was reading the book and while I was, there was a, a, a terror attack in, in Jerusalem in the old city and a Jewish man was stabbed. And of course, the headline in, uh, I think it was the Daily Mail, said something like, Israeli security forces shot Palestinian man dead in Jerusalem. <laughs> this happens a lot. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, and going back to your book called uh, People Love Dead Jews, I said, you know, people don't even love dead Israelis. That was my feeling. And I, I kind of, want to interject with the Israeli uh, um, topic, which which you relate to a little bit in the book. But you actually say that that claim that anti-Zionism and, and anti-Semitism are really not the same thing, right? We can be anti-Zionist but not anti-Semites is actually quite an old one. It's not a new argument. Correct. Um, yeah, so I... You know, I give the history of this uh, this claim, which that explicit version of it goes back to the early years of the Soviet Union. In fact, before the before the founding of the state of Israel, um, this is after the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, you had this sort of attitude among the Bolsheviks to try to get the Jews Jewish masses of the former Russian Empire on their side, and they created these Jewish sections of the Communist Party, which, whose goal was like to spread you know Marxism among the Jewish masses, their, um, they, their slogan was, we are not anti-Semitic, we're just anti-Zionist, right? I mean, oh, and by the way, we're also anti-religious. So what that means is like, you know, Jews are awesome as long as they're not practicing Judaism, supporting Zionism, studying Hebrew, um, you know, and then any organizations that were doing those things are immediately shut down and the people who are doing those things become enemies of the state. So, you know, the thing is, what's interesting about it is in the course of um, you know, not being anti-Semitic and merely being anti-Zionist, they of course managed to, you know, persecute, imprison, torture, and murder thousands of Jews. Um, and then spread this slogan eventually, you know, years later to their client states in the developing world, including of course in the Arab world. So, um, you know, that's the origins of that slogan. But I even trace it back, that concept, even earlier than that. Um, I have a say in a section in the book where I talk about uh, two forms of anti-Semitism, what I call Purim anti-Semitism and Hanukkah anti-Semitism, um, you know, named after the holidays that celebrate triumphs over them. And, you know, Purim anti-Semitism is this, like, very easy to see thing where it's like, big, 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 there's a big bad guy who's like, let's kill all the Jews. Like, there's no ambiguity. But Hanukkah anti-Semitism is something a little different because if you think about the Hanukkah story, there never is this idea that, oh, we're going to kill all the Jews. The goal is the same, which is to destroy Jewish civilization, but it can be accomplished while keeping Jews technically alive, but just editing how they're allowed to be Jewish. This is so um, interesting. We, it goes to something we, Johnny and I, discussed, talked about on an earlier show, this idea of uh, Jewish behavior being policed somehow. And yes. sort of your word editing is very, very interesting. And just the idea that throughout history it recurs that there's 
always something that it's different in each generation that Jews are meant to give up and yes. you know and and you've taken it back to ancient Rome and that was uh, or the uh, you know the ancient world is fascinating and and your the implication of what you're saying is now it's Zionism you know that's the thing Jews have got to yes. give up but, but well you, and it was but, in the Soviet Union as well right I mean yeah, not, sure. and before the state of Israel right so yeah, no, I, I, mean, you know, I, I, realize say, I didn't really answer, address your question about they don't like living Jews either but I guess when I say people love dead Jews <laughs> what I, I just want to address that and I want to go uh, yeah. that I want to, sure, I'm sorry to sure. interrupt you I just want to say that you know what I really mean is that basically like there, you part of that editing is that people are only comfortable uh, with Jews when they are powerless so, which can mean dead, obviously, but politically impotent too. So that's the so there and there's a, a profound discomfort with living Jews, and especially living Jews who have any kind of agency. And so, so that would yes. make Israel a big that would make yes, Israel a right. big problem, exactly, because it's like Jews aren't supposed to do that. You say something uh, towards the end of the book, saying we're talking about the uh, sort of um, rise in anti-Semitism in the United States, and you're talking about the reasons, and you say, you know, now that people who remembered the shock of the Holocaust were dying off, the, the public shame associated with expressing anti-Semitism was dying too. In other words, hating Jews was normal. Now, I'm trying to fight off the urge to ask you for an epiphany, but <laughs> what, what can be done? Okay, now that we, you know, you have so accurately and beautifully, brilliantly, I should say, kind of define this problem, what can we do about it? You know, what can we do about this? I mean... You know, I used to sort of resent this question because I'm like, you know, anti-Semitism is not the, a Jewish problem to solve, right? Like, we're not, I mean, you know, we're not the people causing this problem, right? Like, in a sense, it's not Jews' problem to solve. But, the, of course, the challenge is, like, nobody else is thinking about this. Um, so maybe we need to think about this more. And I think a lot of the ways that we talk about anti-Semitism with a non-Jewish um with a non-Jewish audience or non-Jewish community is like itself very detrimental. And what I mean is like these kinds of arguments that Jews will often make to a non-Jewish society where they're like, oh, Jews are like the canary in the coal mine, right? Like once Jews are attacked, it's like a side of the decline of the society. Like that is a denigration of one's own dignity to say that, right? Because then what you're saying is like, you know, oh, like you should care when Jews are murdered or maimed because, you know, it might be an ominous sign that real people might later get attacked. Like this has sort of been a strategy of the Jewish community that I don't think is effective because I do think it involves a denigration of Jews' humanity. So I would, my idea, it would, would be to flip the narrative. And what I mean by flipping the narrative is, you know, this, there, what we see in these sort of public, you know, sort of memorials, the Holocaust and things like this is erasure of the actual content of Jewish culture and civilization. Um, this is how the book opens with this, um, you know, incident that happened at this Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam in 2018, where there was an employee who, um, you know, a young Jewish man who worked there and they wouldn't let him wear his yarmulke to work. They made him hide it under a baseball hat. You know, he appealed this decision to the board. The board deliberates for four months and then they finally relent and let him wear his yarmulke to work, as I put it in the book. Four months is a really long time for the Anne Frank Museum to ponder whether or not it was a great idea to force a Jew into hiding. And, you know, it turns out that, like, that something very similar had happened, like, six months earlier at the same museum where they have these audio guides um, in all different languages. And, you know, it says English, and there's a British flag, and it says Francais, and there's a French flag until you get to Hebrew. Hebrew, no flag. 
no flag, right? And I'm like, you know, there's just like obvious erasure going on. And then you have also this universalization of the Holocaust, which is like, you know, we can never like talk about the Holocaust in some non-Jewish context without talking about like, oh, you know, this is like, you know, shows how like all bigotry is bad. And this shows how, you know, all genocide is bad. I'm like, okay, yeah, bigotry and genocide are bad. But like, this is not normally how we teach about historical atrocity by like turning it into this universalist message, right? And what it also does is it erases, first of all, thousands of years of anti-Semitism that precede it. And second of all, the content of Jewish civilization. What's really amazing about it, which is this like development of this independent civilization that sort of is this counterculture that weaves its way through the history of the West. So what if we were to include Jewish history as it weaves its way through the history of the West. So a simple example of this, how about literacy? What do you learn in school when you learn about mass literacy? Generally, they teach you that until the printing press was invented, nobody knew how to read except like, you know, the clergy and the nobles and the royalty. But then, hooray, the printing press is invented. Yay, technology. Yay, industrial production. And finally, like, poor people are finally able to learn how to read. Well, like, that's a nice story, but it's a lie. Because Jewish communities had universal, at least universal male literacy for at least a thousand years before the printing press. I mean, like, you know, poor Jewish kids in 8th century rural Libya all knew how to read. Think about what that teaches you, right? So, I mean, there's a lot, I think, that non-Jewish cultures have to learn about, like, the actual content of Jewish civilization that really would upend a lot of the stories we tell ourselves about what history means. Since we're talking about learning, and I fear this may have to be our last question to you dara but i i came away thinking pretty well everything in the book struck me as right and struck me as true including actually the quite difficult stuff you say about america the idea that it was some golden medina exceptional place is and you you have a wonderful chapter about ellis island that may too be wrong and maybe a myth there was a lot of really heavy duty anti-semitism that greeted the first jews to come to America, uh, or, or the big wave in the way, the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century. So is it possible you think everything in the book is right, is everything is true, but it's still nevertheless terribly bleak view to hand on to your children? And we're all, the three of us in this conversation, Jew, you know, Jewish parents. I, I, I just wondered if it's, this is a very difficult message to Im, imbue in, uh, into a next generation. I'm going to say no. Because I think that what is amazing about Jewish history and the Jewish present is not this litany of horror. I think you have to be realistic about that litany of horror. But what is amazing about it is the creativeness and resilience and reinvention of Jewish civilization through all those events. Um, I was uh, talking before about like what non-Jewish societies can draw from this. I'm going to give one silly example, not silly, but uh, not silly actually, but one really sort of surprising example of that for my own work is uh, I, you know, as I mentioned, I'm an academic. Also, I do you know a scholarship in Yiddish and Hebrew literature. I was about ten years ago at a uh, an American uh, conference for Hebrew scholars, and um, pretty much everybody there was like you know a Jewish academic who studies Hebrew um, except there were three people at that conference sitting in the back of the room who were from the Wampanoag nation which is a Native American nation and they were at this Hebrew conference because they are trying to revive Wampanoag as a spoken language which hasn't been spoken in you know maybe two or three hundred years and they're at this Hebrew conference because they said we want to know how you did it 
because Hebrew is the only ancient, you know, only sort of dead language that was revived as a spoken language. I mean, this is an astonishing thing. It's unique in world history. And, you know, there's, you know, I mean, I think the story of modern Zionism is astonishing in world history. I mean, these are really unique, amazing things that I have introduced to my children. And I think, you know, for my children, you know, when I, you know, they're learning, I mean, you learn these things just as part of traditional Judaism, right? I mean, that's sort of, to me, is sort of the most interesting thing is like, you know, you teach children about the Hanukkah story while they're living in a non-Jewish society, it resonates for them, right? Like, you know, that doesn't mean they have to go become, like, you know, zealots, right? Like, I mean, you know, the, the Hashmonaim, the Maccabees were not necessarily like, you know, people I want to live my life according to their ways. Um, but, like, to my children living in a non-Jewish society, like, this is kind of familiar, right? Like, this idea that, like, you're, you're how, how Jewish you are going to be is being sort of that there's this um, outside society that maybe is perhaps not even consciously imposing its desires on you. That's something that my children really can relate to. And then it, it gives them the language to articulate that and also to sort of have their own integrity. Um, and, you know, I have this passage in the book where, and, and I think that my, my children draw that from the Jewish tradition, that sense of, of integrity and the sense of being part of this larger historical story that will continue into the future. I think that that is very inspiring. I don't, you know, what's inspiring is not like, oh, you know, it's so sad these people died in the Holocaust. Like what's, because, you know, that's not inspiring to me. What's inspiring to me is that you do have this, like, you know, this Jewish civilization that doesn't just endure, but creatively reinvents itself. And that every person who participates in this community has an opportunity to be part of that creative reinvention. Um, and I think that that gives people a core of integrity. And that's something that Jewish parents really can give to their children through an engagement with this tradition. And, you know, that's true um, wherever we live as Jews in the world today. Um, this was such a wonderful conversation. We loved the book, and we're so glad that you came on to talk uh, about it. Yeah. And we really recommend it to everyone. Thank you so much, Dara. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. So the book is People Love Dead Jews by Dara Horn, published by Norton. Uh, both Yonit and I just found it a tremendously stimulating read. And we thank Dara Horn for coming on the podcast. And Yonit, we have some awards to give out. Indeed, it's our, uh, you know, weekly tradition, Jonathan, our uh, best example of Mensch of the Week and the most egregious example of chutzpah. You already oh, used fact, up so the I, chutzpah at the beginning, but you, yes? I, I was, as a, you know, bursting with uh, urgency to give that award to Boris Johnson because of the Downing Street Party. But there is a very close contender, and that is sent in by regular unholy listener, old friend of mine, Marshall Yam, living in Israel, who noticed that officials in Saudi Arabia have conducted the biggest ever crackdown on camels that receive Botox injections. Why do they receive Botox <laughs> injections? Because they are contestants in the King Abdulaziz camel festival i kid you not there is a beauty pageant for camels in saudi arabia in which judges decide the winner based on the shape of an animal's head neck hump dress and posture and some contestants 
trainers have been using Botox and facelifts and other cosmetic alterations to make camels more attractive. And those ruses and tricks are now to be banned. And Marshall thought of this because we did talk about beauty pageants in our Chutzpah Award last week. So for the two weeks running, we have singled out the organisers of beauty pageants um, for the Chutzpah Award. But this week must be the one that is the Chutzpah of Chutzpah, a camel contest, beauty contest in Saudi Arabia, no longer being allowed or tolerating <laughs> facelifts and Botox. We, we live in a very strange world. Jonathan, don't we? I, you know, this is just, first of all, it's terrible cruelty to animals. And I would just say it proves the point we were trying to make last time. We can erase the whole idea of beauty pageants for human beings. Then the rest. But But the funny thing is part of why people hate beauty pageants is they say, oh, this is like a cattle market. It's like a meat market treating women as animals. This is a literal (laughs) (laughs) livestock beauty pageant of camels, and now they can't use Botox. I mean, you do think, yeah, as you say, this is a strange world we live in. Okay, well, at least I can now do the Mensch Awards because you did the chutzpah. So I am um, sitting high and mighty on my very good story here, which is a little bit of Jewish pride, even a lot of Jewish pride. The Maccabees at Yeshiva University in New York, who hold the longest current winning streak in the NCAA tournaments, undefeated to date for 36 consecutive wins. Now, think of the fact that the Macs have to, they they have their studies, they have their religious studies, and they suffer from the fact that their fans are all on Zoom and not in in the actual court, and yet they still won. And uh, Ryan Terrell, who's the guard, a guard on the team, said, we want to show that Jews can play basketball and make our Jewish community proud. So that's a good story. And I think their last uh, winning streak was actually during Hanukkah, so this is excellent. I don't want to say Jews rule basketball because we all know that's a lie, but still, it's a nice, nice story um, coming out from. I love the idea that the Maccabees had an unbroken and much longer than predicted successful victorious streak during Hanukkah. Yes. I mean, that is so on message. Nice. It's just perfect. Now, since I, uh, the person I married uh, played for the rival team of the Maccabees in Israel, not the Greek, by the way, but Hapoel Tel Aviv, I just have to make note of the fact that the Maccabees here in Israel not doing as great. But I don't want to ruin the story, so forget that. So these are the American Maccabees. I love that you felt you are um, married to basketball royalty in Israel. <laughs> that is that is serious yichas in Israel, right? Because basketball is such a big deal in Israel. That a connection to a real-life basketball player, that is the kind of... So you're beaming there. I ju- just, I'm just saying it was chosen chosen just because of that reason. No, no other reason whatsoever. It is a, um, a wonderful accolade. So that is chutzpah and mensch uh, for this week. Um, uh, I think we w- remains to say if you enjoyed what we do and if you enjoyed listening to our conversation with each other and with Dara Horn, recommend us to your friends. Give us an A-star, five-star rating and a nice little review. Lots of you have been doing that and we appreciate it. It helps get Unholy in front of more listeners. And um, people to thank, Yoni. Yes, indeed. We want to thank Leon Friedman, our executive producer, and Rom Atik and Omer Primat and Irad Eshel for original music. And we shall meet next week, Jonathan. See you then. <laughs> <laughs>